Well, I think you know what I'm going to say next. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And though we did set a record last week by going through a whole chapter, we're actually going to take more verses, but only part of a chapter this week. So um, our text this morning will be verses 1 to 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Follow along as I read. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do not, do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking of these things according to human wisdom, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing of the crops." If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And that those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer before we tackle this text this morning? Heavenly Father, we come to your word with anticipation this morning. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit will illuminate the truths of these words, of your word. Again, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be the teacher. Because we know that nothing that is said or anything that will be accomplished this morning will be accomplished outside of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you will remove any distractions, that you will remove anything that is being said, and simply teach your word to our hearts this morning. I pray that we would be willing to be obedient to it and that you would give us the repentance and the ability to obey. And may we go forth rejoicing because we have heard from our God here this morning through the pages of Scripture. In your name, amen. Well, we're coming maybe this morning to a bit of a touchy topic. 
And I'm going to, I'm going to use Pastor David's saying this morning because it, it kind of gets me out of trouble. But he said, typically in the church, the saying is this, Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. And today, Paul is going to address whether it is right to actually get paid to do ministry. Is it, is it something that is a right of the person who is in ministry to receive money from ministry? And it's funny because in some ways, as we look at this passage, this passage is actually not primarily given to us to teach us exactly that. So you say, what are you doing? Well, you know what? In Philippians chapter 2, we have this great teaching on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it gives us all kinds of information in chapter 2, right? He emptied himself. How did he himself? By taking on the form of a man. And we go all the way through that, subjected himself to the death of the cross, all of that thing. And all of that treaty is to tell us about what? Humility. And so Paul is now is really on in the process of going to say, I'm going to de deny my rights because I have rights to be paid. And guess what? I'm denying those rights. But in that, just like Paul in chapter in Philippians chapter two, when he gave us so much information about the incarnation, he's also going to be laying down a principle as he comes here that those who serve in the ministry, those who are missionaries, those who are pastors and teachers who are in full-time ministry need to be paid for their ministry. Now, normally we have a guest speaker, but I'm here, the passage came, and so we're gonna talk about it anyway. And so this morning, I would just wanna make it very, very clear. I am not looking for a raise. I've actually tried to turn down raises. I am well taken care of. I have everything that I need. My, my cupboards are overflowing. My children are doing great, right? They're not starving, right? So we, we, we are doing well. We, are, we have been liberally taken care of. We have everything that we could ever ask for. You have been generous beyond means. So this morning, just sit back and relax. I'm not asking you to get out your checkbook. I'm simply going to be laying out the principles of God's word this morning as we go through chapter 9. And as we go through this, we're going to see really six reasons that Paul gives why he has the right to be remunerated. And we could say, Really, he's going to give us six reasons why those who are in the mission field or who are in ministry should be receiving recompense for their work. Now, we could look at, and as he starts here, as he gives us these six reasons, he, he's really speaking and he's going to say, this is my right. This is my right. And in fact, what an implication is then that those who I'm serving need to know this because they need to recognize that it is their duty because if it's my right, it's their duty to perform this. Now remember, Paul's going to eventually say, guess what? I'm choosing not to take it. But nevertheless, the duty still stands and it should be offered. 
And so Paul is going to give us these six reasons why those in ministry should be recompensed. Now, the first one we could really say particularly applies to Paul alone. But then again, we could say, well, let's, maybe we could just say it's an apostolic pattern. In other words, the, the apostles set a pattern of taking money, right? Now, they're foundational to the church. And now maybe we could argue that they're even special. But even the apostles set, set this pattern out. Now, as Paul begins, he says, am I not free? Now, remember, in chapter 8, we were dealing with those who thought they had rights. They thought that they had freedoms and they could exercise them. And really, they could eat meat because they were the mature ones. They were the biblically literate ones. And therefore, they were the strong ones. And so they would do it because, after all, they had that right. Paul says, well, actually, you have the right. But you don't want to stumble your brother and call him to sin. And so Paul is going to say, hey, I have rights too. I have rights because guess what? Am I not free? Don't I have some freedoms? Don't I have rights? I, I like them just as much as you do. I cherish these rights. But then he's going to say, well, actually, I cherish some other things more than my rights. And we'll, we'll get to that next week. And so he says to them, am I not an apostle? Now, some people think that he's, his apostleship is being attacked here. I don't think so. I think he's just trying to make a case. He says, am I not an apostle? And then he gives a defense of that. I have rights as an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, we know that a prerequisite for being an apostle was what? Seeing the risen Lord. Remember in the upper room, they said, let us choose someone to replace Judas. And they said, what? Someone who is what? Seen Jesus in the resurrection. Now, we know that Paul in, on the road to Damascus was struck down by the light. It would seem he saw the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he, he was in a couple of other places that he was that Christ revealed himself to him in Acts 15. We know in 2 Corinthians 12 that he was, there was a man caught up into the third heaven, right? He was taught by our Lord Jesus Christ. He saw what? The Lord Jesus Christ risen. So Paul says, Here, here's, I'm an apostle, right? I have the qualifications of an apostle. I, I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, are you not my work in the Lord? In other words, he says to the Corinthians church, not that you're my work, but you're my work in what? The Lord. My boast is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who's produced the fruit. And he says, the fact that you exist tells me what? Tells me that I'm an apostle. The fact is that you, you, I, I came to you as an apostle to the Gentiles. And guess what? There's a church here. Guess what? God is working your life. Here's my, here's, here's my credentials, in, in fact. It's you, right? It's you. You exist. You're my credentials. Then he says in verse 2, If others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, right? I came to you. You're part of, you, I spread the gospel to you. I spoke to you. And at least to you, you know that I am, I am an apostle because I'm the one who started this church. I'm the one who came and brought the gospel. And he says, actually, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Right? Now, we talked about this in FOF this morning, 
A seal was often a, a, a signet ring that was put on a piece of wax on, on a, a document or what, whatever it was sealing in order to make sure that it was genuine, to make sure that it was authentic, to make sure that it, it was recognized the authority of the one sending it. It wasn't, wasn't, the contents wasn't substituted or altered. And so the seal was the official representation of the authority of the one who sent the merchandise or the letter. And Paul says, you are what? You're my seal. You're my authentication. You're, you're the, the, the demonstration of who I am. You're guaranteed my apostleship because you're genuine. And so the church was a living seal of Paul's apostleship, the proof of his genuineness. And Paul says, look, I have rights. I'm an apostle. I'm free. You're proof of it. You're proof of that I am of who I claim to be. And he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Paul now gives a defense of those who examine him. The, the word examine here is a legal term for an investigation or inquiry made before a decision is reached in a case. And so Paul now clearly want, desires to define his rights. He says, establishing that I'm an apostle, now I want you to, to know the rights that I have as an apostle. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Now he's speaking of him and Barnabas here. He says, don't we have the right to what? Eat and drink. Now he's not saying here, we actually have the right to eat. He's not just saying we have that right to eat or drink. What he, the implication is what? I have the right to eat and drink because, from you. In other words, you should be providing me this eat food and drink. Galatians 6.6 6 says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Right? And that's not, that's not just a glowing report of how great the teacher is. That's actually to what? To give him physical things. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 17, The elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work at hard at teaching and preaching. The labor is what? Worth his wages. So he says... I have the right to expect that if I am teaching you and I am here in full-time ministry, that what? That you feed and, and give me drink. Don't I have that right? Then he says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brother of the Lord in Cephas? And he says, I have some rights here. I have the right to what? Be supported and to have my wife come with me. He says, just like what? The apostles. Remember, Cephas has got a wife. He's in ministry. He's being supported. The Lord's brothers, some of his Christ, Christ brothers have come to salvation. They're married, right? And he says, they have the right to take a believing wife with them. And the idea here is, is that there's what? Supported. They're supported. He says, don't I have that right? I have that right. I'm an apostle. I have the right to do that. Barnabas and I can both do that. 
Now, I just want you to see that he's establishing a principle here. And that principle is what? When you send out a missionary or when you pay a pastor, you need to pay him enough so that his wife doesn't have to work, that she is supported so that she can be what? A wife and a mother and support him in his ministry and not have to go to work. That's what he's saying. And Paul says, I, as an apostle, look at the apostles, look at the other guys. They're doing this. They're being supported. Do I not have that right? And then he says, kind of with a touch of sarcasm, or do only Barnabas and I have the right to refrain from working? Right? Am I the only ones who, who don't have that right to refrain? Sorry, I, I, I left one really important word, the not out there, which completely changes it. But he says, or do only Barnabas and I have not have a right to refrain from working? Are we the only ones who have to work? Is, are we the exception, right? And he's saying it sarcastically, and, he, and, he's, and the answer is, of course, no. Of course, no. And so Paul is saying, listen, as an apostle, and the pattern of the apostles is what? You get food and drink. You get paid enough to take your wife along to go in ministry. And Paul says, don't I have that right? Now, I voluntarily lay that aside but just because I lay it aside doesn't mean it's not my right. And so Paul really says, listen, I have the right to be supported. If I'm in ministry, I have the right to be supported. And guess what? It's the pattern of the apostles. Now you might argue, well, that's only for the apostles. But you might also draw the principle that maybe, maybe, just maybe, if the apostles thought they could take it, and they're the foundation of the church, maybe they were setting an example for the rest of us. But if you want, you can just leave that one to Paul because we've got five more. We've got five more reasons, right? So if you, if you want to duck that one, okay. But I think we'll see from the tone of the rest of the passage, guess what? The same idea comes. Well, then he says this, not only are we, shall we say, supposed to, we have the ap apostolic example or pattern but we notice that it is also the usual pattern and the normal human employment pays for their workers. This is the usual pattern. This is what takes place when people work. People work, they get paid. And now he gives us three illustrations to show that paying workers is customary. And so he makes the point through rhetorical questions as he's done through much of this passage and he will answer these he will ask these questions with the expectation that you give an answer an obvious answer the answer to these questions is no no and so he says first of all he says in verse 7 who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense and the question to that should be no no one right because when a soldier goes to war, he is paid. He's given everything that is necessary for him to be able to perform his duty. Right? 
They used to pay them what? So the Roman soldiers in salt. That's where a man is worth his salt, right? Because there was wages that were paid. No one would go to battle in war. How would you keep people even in the army if you weren't paying them? Can you imagine how ineffective an army would be if they fought all day and then they went to their night jobs, right? If you remember World War II when the German blitzkrieg went through France, their biggest problem was what? The foot soldiers were getting tired and they couldn't keep up. World War II might have been completely different if they would have decided that, they, that their soldiers needed to spend the, the evenings and nights working their night job before coming back to battle. It might have not have been a blitzkrieg, right? And so you can imagine how ineffective an army would be. And in essence, he says, listen, your ministers are soldiers in God's army and they are going out to battle and you need to provide them with everything that they need to do their job. You can't hinder them by making them what? Supply their own weapons and make their own food and, and to earn it. How ineffective would they be in their ministry? Now notice this. If you're supplying a uh, soldier with everything that he needs right? You're not going to find a Motel 6 out in the battlefield, are you? You're not going to find that they're given the fancy, fancy meals and all of that. You're to give him what he needs, right? This isn't a call to, to, to again, to make a, a luxurious life. You give him what he needs to do for the battle. So you provide for the things that he needs in order to do his job effectively. That doesn't mean a fancy car, though it doesn't hurt, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean a big house and a swimming pool. But he needs the tools to be able to do that and to take care of his family, right? And so he says, does, does a soldier fight on his own? No, he doesn't. He, get, he fights for pay. He's taken care of. Then he gives us a second one. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Now, if you know, nobody farms for free. Nobody goes out and farms all day and, you know, run, runs a combine till late at night and then jumps, drives to town. Well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe the modern farmers actually do in order to, to make a living. But the idea is what? A farmer doesn't go out and work on the farm field all day and then go into town to earn his money. He's expected to be paid for his labor. He's expected to get some of the crop. 2 Timothy 2.6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. In other words, they get paid or get part of the crop for doing, for farming. Why would you farm if otherwise? Why would you participate? And so he says, the common thing is what? To pay them, to pay the laborer. And then he uses the third one, or tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock. He says, when people are shepherding someone else's sheep, what? They expect that there are going to be some benefits, some pay, and even what? Taking some of the milk. The kids can't eat it all, right? The kids, the bah kids, right? Okay. So they, they, can't, they can't take all the milk, so you what? You take some of it. It's there. Why let it go to waste, right? And so you expect that there are some benefits and there's some payment for taking care of the sheep. 
And so all three workers are paid for their work. It is customary, rightful, and the expected thing. It's just expected. If they work, they labor, they get paid. And so it should be true for God's workers as well. When they labor and they work hard, there's an expectation that what? If they work and they labor on your behalf, that what? They're paid. And he says, this is just, this is just the usual pattern. This isn't some, something extraordinary. This is, look at real life. This is the way it is, right? Nothing's for free. You pay for it. Well, at this point, you might be thinking just like Paul is going to say here. Guess what? In verse 3, it says, it says now, the, 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 I mean, it, the third point, the Old Testament law. So he says not only the apostolic pattern, not the usual pattern, but he says the Old Testament law. And Paul says, I am not speaking these things according to hu- human judgment, am I? And Paul is anticipating what some of you might be thinking. Paul, there's nothing in Scripture that says this. You're just using your human logic. You are just extrapolating principles, but you've got not a leg to stand on. This, I'm not sure that the rights you're demanding. I think you're making a logical leap. And Paul says... I'm not, I'm not speaking according to human judgment, am I? I'm not, I'm not using human wisdom to get this, am I? And again, he wants you to say what? No. No, I'm not. And now he's going to tell you why. Or does not the law say these things? So now Paul is going to appeal to the Old Testament law, to God's principles in his word. And he says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? So Paul says, listen, God has something to say about this in, his old, in, the, in the Old Testament. God has laid out a principle that God sees this as, as a principle that those who labor should be what? Should be paid. Now notice this, he says... You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And again, he's quoting Deuteronomy 24, 4. And then he says, or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing of the crops. Now, here's something that I I want us to understand and I want us to think about. If we were just to look at Deuteronomy here, 25.4, on the surface, what's he talking about? Oxen, right? Oxen. And so you might be saying, Paul, wait a minute. Back the horse up, or in this case, the oxen. Back the oxen up. What is going on here? You can't rip a verse out of context like that, and you can't just use it any way you want. You can't just make this up. You can't pull Scripture out of context, right? We talk about all the time. Scripture, context, context, context. 
Well, if we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to actually see something here. And I want us to see that Paul is not pulling uh, scripture, as we would say, out of the air and making this up. He's not... Paul has a perfect understanding of the Old Testament. He has an understanding contextually of what's taking place. And so as he uses this scripture, if we see this, and I want this to be a principle that we understand, he's actually using that scripture exactly in context, exactly as as it it is, is intended. And so therefore, when he makes the assertions of its interpretation later on in this passage, we will see that he is exactly right. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24 and 25, Paul is in the process of trying to establish rights for people, for people. And he is, he is in, in the law there. I should, did I say Paul? Yeah. He writes a lot of scripture, and uh, but he did <laughs> Moses, all right? Good, I was afraid this was going to be a perfect day, so we got that out of the way. So as he is writing here in the law, there is protection for different, for, for different people. So in, in, in 24:14, he starts speaking of the rights, protecting the rights of workers. It speaks of the need to pay workers what they are due. Workers must be, not be oppressed and their wages must be paid on the day it's due. In other words, he's protecting human rights and he's protecting the worker here. Then as he moves on to 16, he again protects the right of the innocent where he says only a sinner himself should be punished for a crime, not, not his children or other relatives. So again, he's protecting the rights of those who are innocent then he moves on in verse 17 and he protects the rights of widows and sojourners and orphans and he speaks to that and again he's protecting their rights he's protecting them they get to glean in order to to have food and so he again protects the rights of the poor he protects the right of those who are in difficult situations and then in verse 25, he even, he even protects the rights of those. In chapter 25, as he starts verses 1 to 3, he starts to protect the rights of the criminal. Because he says, this, you can't degrade the person. Here's the limits to the punishment of the person who has been caught and convicted. And so in the middle of all of this, and then, and then if we skip over verse 4, in 5 to 10, he protects the rights of the widow in Leverite marriage. That's right, right? The, 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 the brother is supposed to marry the widow of his brother. And if he doesn't want to, she goes to the elder, takes off his sandal, gives him a smack, the house of the what? Without the sandal. Right? So again, he's protecting, they're protecting love right marriage and the widow. So in the middle of all of this human protection and all of this standing up for people's rights, Moses writes in 25.4, Do not muzzle the, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. 
one of these things is not like the others. One of these things doesn't belong, right? We're familiar with that? This is, this is what? What on earth? What's going on? Now, many of the rabbis understood this, but the major concern here is not the auction, it, uh, oxen, right? An ox used to take and they used to thresh. They could either walk on the grain or the corn or they would pull a sledge behind them and they would grind out the corn and they would say, guess what? Take the muzzle off him because he gets to eat a little bit of it, right? The irony is if he doesn't eat, he's not going to be strong enough to do it. But the idea is what? He should have an expectation that he gets to participate in the harvest of his work. And the whole idea is what? He's not talking about oxen. He's talking about the rights of human beings to be what? Recompense for their work. Because the whole context is speaking about the rights of human beings. So yes, God is concerned about the oxen. He certainly is. He says that what he feeds the raven, right? He clothes the lilies. He does all of those things. But ultimately, God's concern is not primarily the oxen, but what? People. So even in context, as we look back there, he's speaking about human rights. And he's saying, guess what? The laborer should expect what? To get something for his labor. And so now Paul gives that application exactly back in 1 Corinthians. He says, is God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? Well, he's concerned about animals. He talks about their treatment. He, he feeds them. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes. In other words, he's not speaking primarily for the oxen's sake, but what? For your sake. And then Paul go continues. For our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing of the crops. In other words, what? There should be an expectation that you get paid for your work. The thresher threshes, why? Because he expects to get some of the harvest. The plowman, he plows, why? Because he's hoping for the crop. And so Paul says, listen, this is, this is, this is ensconced in the Old Testament law. This is what God's thinking is on this. And so he says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In other words, we have given you spiritual food. We have given you the gospel. We have given you the most important thing in the world. Is it too much to ask that you would in return give us material things in order for us to live, in order for us to do ministry? He says, we've given you spiritual things. We've given you the gospel. We've spread it among you. 
Is it any big deal that we reap, that we get material things from you? So Paul makes the case that a minister who sows spiritual things in God's field has the right to reap material things from that field. Right? Paul called the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 9, what? The field of God. He said, we're, we're, that's where we're working. And he says, I have the right, if I sow that field, to what? Reap from that field. He applies the same principle to the collection for the saints in Jerusalem in writing to the Gentile church that they were pleased to contribute to their needs. Indeed, we were so bound to do so. The churches of Macedonia, those in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and perhaps others consistently supported Paul financially as, as a pastor while he worked among them and as a missionary after he left them. In addition, again, they helped other churches. They had little wealth and were undergoing considerable persecution, yet they still supported them. Giving to the Lord's workers is giving to the Lord. God gives to his children beyond measure. As Paul has already reminded the Corinthians, they were not lacking in any gifts, 1 Corinthians 1.7. Peter tells us that the divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so God supplies our needs according to our, his riches in the glory in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4.9. According to his riches. Not out of his riches, but according to his riches. Abundantly, overly, Right? If I give you, if I have a million dollars and I give you a dollar, I'm giving you out of my riches, right? Or from my riches. But if I'm giving you according to my riches, what am I, if I, if I give you $100,000, I'm giving you what? According to my riches, right? And he says, I'm giving, God gives us that according to his riches. Philippians 4.19. God's children are to reflect their heavenly Father's generosity. He who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who is bountiful, he shall reap bountifully. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now, we're not talking the prosperity gospel here. It's just so we want to pull back a little bit. We're not talking that God, if you give, God's going to make you rich. We understand that God's principle is this. You work, you get a little extra, you give it away. That's his deal. And he says, if you give away and you live frugally, God tends to give you more. Why does he give you more? To up your lifestyle? For you to give more. God wants you to be a conduit, not a bank. Right? The buck doesn't stop here. And the more we sow into God's ministry the more he gives to, for us to give. But the moment you start to take that and start to up your lifestyle because he's given you lots of stuff, then God closes that off. Because he doesn't give you more stuff to spend it on you. He gives you more money to spend it on his church and, his minist and, and, the, and the ministry and for missions and for God's glory. So we, we want to we just pull back from the, oh, if I give to God, he'll just make me rich. No. But he will bless you. And often he will bless you spiritually. 
In other words, there is spiritual blessing that comes from being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul really says this, there's blessing in what giving? You get blessed. You get blessed. And so... We need to give according to what God has given to us. So he says the Old Testament law. And now he says this, number four. We have the apostolic pattern, the usual pattern, the Old Testament law. And then he says this. You're doing it for others. <laughs> You're doing it for others. Paul says, I have the, he says, if others share the right over you, do we not more? In other words, Paul says to the Corinthians, listen, the idea here is you, if others share this right over you. In other words, the implication is there are others who are already receiving support from you. There are others who are already support, getting support from you. And he says, we share that same right. If others share that right over you, don't we more? In other words, we're the founders of the church. We're the ones who came bringing the gospel. We're the ones who started this church. And if you're already paying other ministers of God and you're already giving them that right, then certainly don't I have that right. Don't I have that right? In fact, don't we, don't we have it more? Nevertheless, he says, we did not use that right. He said we could have, but we chose not to. We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. In other words, we chose not to take money from you, not because we didn't have the right, but because we thought it would be better for witness for the gospel. Now we know that Paul worked hard. Paul tells the Corinthians the same thing in Ephesians. You yourself know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who are with me. Acts 20, 34. Think about that. The apostle Paul is not only supporting himself, but he's what, supporting others. That does seem like a waste of time, doesn't it? And yet Paul says, I did it, what, for the gospel's sake. 2 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so that we would not burden any of you. Paying his own way was one means of, of not causing any hindrance to the gospel. Paul did not want new converts to think that he was using the gospel for what? Gain. He didn't, he didn't want them to think that the gospel meant you needed to give. So Paul said, I would rather work than be supported by these new converts and by those who are, we are evangelizing than to take money from them and cause them to think that I am in this for, for money and that the gospel is a racket to make money. 
And I would say we need to draw another principle from here. When we send out missionaries to, new, to a new field, they need to be supported. They need to be supported by the church back home. Until such a time as the church is established and, and the believers have, are in that church and are unable to support a, a local pastor, those missionaries need to be what? Supported from somewhere else. So that those people aren't thinking, here comes the guy in his Learjet again, promising to heal us if we give him his money, give us our money. And Paul says, I would rather give up my right to be supported even though God's law says I should be in order to what? Further the gospel. And so he says, though I have the right to it, I would rather give it up. And I have that right, why? Because it's clear that other, other men are being supported. Other men are being supported, shouldn't we? And so you're going to find denominations that think that they shouldn't pay a pastor and that the pastors that there should, you know, we'll just have someone stand up on Sunday and we'll just hope for the best, right? And yet it's clear through scripture that those who labor full time should be what? Paid. Others are being paid because it's obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says there's the apostolic pattern, the usual pattern, the Old Testament. You do it for others. And then we could say it's universally done. It is right in sacred duties to be paid from the offering. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Do you not know? In other words, you are already aware of this. this I'm not giving you anything new. That those who perform sacred sacrifice eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have the same share from the altar. Now he's referring here most likely to the Old Testament where it was clear in the Old Testament law that, that the priests were to be what? Able to, to eat from the sacrifices that were brought. In fact, Leviticus 6, 16 says, when it is left of Aaron and his sons are to eat, it shall be eaten as unleavened cakes in the holy place. They are to eat in the court of the tent of meeting. It shall not be baked with leaven, I have given it as their share for my offering by fire. It is most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It is permanent ordinance throughout your generations from the offering by fire to the Lord. Whoever touches them will be consecrated. In other words, there was part of that offering that was given to what? Aaron's sons. Now remember the Levites didn't get land, right? They didn't get land, why? They were supported by the tithes and offerings of the rest of the tribes. Numbers 5 says this. Also, every 
contribution pertaining to the holy gifts of the son of Israel, which they offer to the priest shall be his. So every man's holy gift shall be his. Whatever any man gives to the priest, it becomes his. In other words, there was also a time that not only did they give their tithe to, towards the, the, the Levites, and not only did they receive money from that, but there was also what gifts given by the people to the priests. And he says, when it's given to you, it's yours. Now, there's some debate here whether if they're speaking of two people or one people, uh, set of people here. I tend to think it's two. Where he says that there are those who what? Keep. Those who perform sacred sacrifices eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share. So it would seem that the speaking of the priest and then all of those who, who helped him it could be the same person, but the idea is what? The principle doesn't matter. Whether this is a pagan temple, we talked about that last week, right? They got into trouble for eating meat at a pagan temple. The pagan priests also what? Ate meat. They got a third of the offering. They sold that, that meat to make money as well. So well, however you take this, the principle is still the same. Those who perform sacred Ceremonies, those who give the gospel, those who preach, those who teach should receive what? Compensation for it. And so he says, there's an Old Testament pattern. Not only is it in the law, but it is also right in the priesthood. They receive money for it. And so Paul says, if they have that right, don't I? It's in the law. It's demonstrated. It's universally done. Everybody knows that it's done. No one even questions this practice. Then don't I have the right to be paid? And then Paul ends this with this sixth reason. Why should I be paid? Because Christ commands it. Because Christ commands it. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? The Lord refers to Jesus Christ. The Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel, those who preach it, those who, who pub make a public declaration, who disseminate it, announce it, are to get their living from the gospel. Okay, Paul, where do you find that? <laughs> right? Where do you find that? Well, it could be that, that Jesus Christ taught him when he was caught up into the third heaven. But certainly we see the principles of that when Jesus was sending out the 12. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus, he summoned the 12 and began to send out them in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. But to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you and listen to you, you are to go from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. What's the principle? You're staying at somebody's house. You're not bringing any food. You're not bringing a money bag. What's the idea? They're going to feed you and take care of you for the, for the gospel ministry that you're doing. 
Did the same thing with the 70 when he sent them out. Luke 20, 10. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter first, say peace be to this house. Okay, so again, stay in the house eating and drinking. Verse 7, what they give you for the labor is worthy of his wages. Do, wages do not keep moving from what? House to house. The principle is what? Feed him. Take care of him. So Paul says, this is the command of the Lord. This is the command of the Lord. You are to provide for this person. So right now you should have this question in your mind. Paul, aren't you breaking Christ's commandment? You're not taking the money. Well, you should have had that question in your mind. What are you doing, Paul? Aren't you breaking God's command? But the reality, who is this command to? Is it to, the, is it to the pastor to demand this? Is it for the missionary to demand this? No, it's for the people. So the command isn't that the, that the missionary or the pastor has to take it. The command from the Lord Jesus Christ is what? it should be offered. It should be offered to the people, to, to those who are in ministry. So Paul isn't standing in, in disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's simply pointing out that the general principle is what? Those who serve get paid. Now there may be, a, there may be like the missionary, right? Who's being supported somewhere else. But the idea is this, right? We should be supporting those who are in ministry. Christ commands it. And there's, there's, a, there's a time and there's a place where those who are in ministry, in order for the sake of the gospel, will turn that down. And they will turn down their right. But nevertheless, the responsibility is still left with those who are in the church to make sure that those who are in ministry are paid for their labor. And so Paul gives us these six reasons, five if you want to reject the first one, right? You want to reject the apostolic example, but he gives us, it's the usual pattern. He says the Old Testament law does it. You do it for other people. In other words, other people are paid to be in ministry. That should be an understanding. It's universally done, and Christ commands it. And he says, this is the right of those in ministry to receive for doing their job. And so he calls it an incumbent upon the church and upon believers to make sure that this is done. And so it is actually a shame on the gospel when pastors and missionaries are living at a, a, a standard below the rest of the congregation, where pastors are underneath their cars fixing the leaks underneath their car because they're driving a car that's 50 years old because he can't afford a new one. And the pastors and those in ministry are, are wearing secondhand clothes with holes in them because they can't afford new ones. 
If we understand that the most precious thing that we have is spiritual truth and the teaching of the word of God, then just like everything else in our life should be reflected by our pocketbook. Now, this is not a call to make pastors rich or missionaries live at an exorbitant lifestyle. But it is a call to make sure that they have everything that they need to do their job. Everything that they need, not more, but everything that they need to. His wife needs to be able to be a wife and a mother. He needs to be able to have the resources that he needs to do in order to study the word of God and to teach. He doesn't need the best of everything. He doesn't need the latest of everything. But let us not make our missionaries, let us not make our pastors have to be those who have to get another job in order to pay to live properly. And so Paul simply lays this out and says, listen, here's my rights. Now I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give them up next week. So you come back next week if you think, oh no, he's asking for money again. But yet the principles still stand. And so let us believe these principles. Let us take these reasons and make sure that wherever we go and whoever we are supporting, that we make sure that what? They are provided for the way that God has commanded them to be. It's not wrong. It's actually God's intended way. And when we do that, we will bring glory to God and the gospel will be ordained. And you, above all else, will be blessed for your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we give for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We actually are, are, are able to help with the ministry that way. And then God in his wisdom, guess what? He blesses you. He may not bless you with more money even, but he will bless you in your soul because obedience always brings joy. And so this morning, let us take Paul's reasons. Let us let them marinate in our hearts and let us then be obedient to the call that Paul has put forth for us this morning. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truths. We thank you for its clarity. And above all else, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that reveals its truths to us. And I pray this morning that even on this topic that sometimes can be touchy, that you would convince us in our hearts of the truths that we have laid out this morning. And that we would recognize your ways. And that we would be diligent to be obedient in the way that would be pleasing to you. So Heavenly Father, go before us, I pray today. Convince us of your truth. May we rejoice in your ways. In your name, amen.